Uh, my name is Nate with the Good Morning Liberty podcast, and uh, Charlie's there. Yeah? Yeah. Charlie's, Charlie's here. here, too. And I know that Ron Paul changed my life. I was a hardcore conservative until I saw Ron Paul in 2008, and I realized that libertarianism was the way. Yeah. I've always believed in liberty. Yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Since 2008. Since 2008, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. The Other Than One Paul Podcast starts now. Welcome to the Honor and Ron Paul Podcast. My name is Howard Gratton and I'm joined today uh, with um, uh, Nate Thurston and Charlie Thompson of the Good Morning Liberty Podcast and several other ventures that they have. Uh, it's... Uh, an honor to uh, meet them and uh, chat with them today. Uh, so guys, oftentimes I start off the podcast just talking a little bit about, you know, where you were 2006, 2007-ish. Now you guys are young guys, so if you say diapers, I'm going to be feeling extra old. Uh, but 2006, 2007-ish kind of a time frame. And then, uh, you mentioned 2008 with the Ron Paul campaign. Uh, what, uh, how did that all come about and how did you guys change nate why don't we start with you well i was like i said i was a staunch republican like i had a george bush bumper sticker on my car Uh, i was uh, very very republican i always have been and yeah i mean honestly seeing ron paul speak in those debates it didn't it wasn't things that i agreed with immediately but I'd always been someone who was very skeptical. I've always questioned everything. And hearing someone up there talk about those kind of things, it really led me to to dig deeper in, into everything. And I'm so glad that he was able to get up on a major debate stage like that and say the things that he said because he's obviously changed the lives of a lot of people. Nate and I have had a very similar path, I would say, because – well, throughout life, honestly, we've been best friends since like, I don't know, fifth grade or something like that. Yeah. His mom actually taught me English in seventh and eighth <laughs> grade. We came, we come from a really tiny town and Nate and I got into politics about the same time. And honestly, we got in, be, uh, because of the fear of Obama. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, what our parents listened to and, and what, uh, you know, when we became eligible to vote, vote in 2006, 2007, I was a, um, a, a junior and senior in high school and, uh, I was 18 my senior year. So that was the first, uh, election I was able to vote in. I turned 18 before the, the November election in 2008. So, uh, we started listening to talk radio, mainly what our parents listened to, I think. Um, yeah. A lot of Rush Limbaugh, a lot, a lot of, of Rush Sean Limbaugh, Hannity. Mark yeah. Levin, uh, yeah. Those types of guys, and we were all about the fear of Obama. We're like, oh my! I remember you and Nate and I were driving to St. Louis one time, St. Louis, Missouri, and we were listening to the talk radio, and we're like, oh my God! Like America is going to be socialist because of Obama. We have to do everything we can to stop Obama. Yeah, that was our thought process back then. Like we were so Republican. It, it was we were we were bought into the um, ah, you know. Mitt Romney's not the greatest, but at least mm-hmm. it's not Obama John, or John, John, John McCain, McCain back yeah. then. Sorry. John McCain is the person. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, I was even bought in on the for, the foreign policy too. Like uh, I will, right. I regretfully I will say so right now. When we started, when we got into Iraq and we started doing the things that we did there, I 
did not disagree with it whatsoever. I mean, that was what, 2003, I was a junior in high, or sophomore in high school at that time. I remember watching the first bombs drop on TV while we were in school. Propaganda was good back then, man. (laughs) And I, I mean, just, this is disgusting. I feel disgusted when I say it now, Mm -hmm. but I liked it when I saw it. I thought it was just, Perfect. This is yeah. what we got to be doing. We're keeping people safe. We gotta, we gotta liberate these people. We gotta bring freedom to all these people. And and I was just completely bought into it. It was good propaganda on impressionable minds. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It wasn't even to me about the even the weapons of mass destruction. Even I was like, well, he murdered a uh, hundred thousand of his own people or something like that, right. whatever the number was. So and I'm fine if we murder five hundred. Yeah. So, so you know, <laughs> let's take it up by a factor of ten. Yeah. Let's right. kill, let's kill a number of them on the, so we can keep them safe. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, we were totally bought into it, but I mean, seeing Ron Paul go out there and talk about how the income tax needed to be zero. He had that spat with, uh, Rudy Giuliani. I believe that was in the 2008 debate, um, where Giuliani tried to get him to walk back a statement to apologize for saying, uh, that we were, that we could have been somehow responsible for what happened on 9-11. And Giuliani obviously was, was very upset about that. And seeing him stand up there and say those things, I mean, uh, thank God he did that. I mean, it, it changed, changed my whole life. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and the, uh, talking about Obama, I was just listening to a podcast with, uh, Scott Horton of antiwar.com. And uh, he said everybody was worried that Obama was a, a secret Muslim, and it turned out he was a secret George Bush. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's like ooh, that hurts all sides. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, it's weird to see that it's it's you can see obviously how politically divided we are because uh, and just how partisan everyone is because obviously you had the anti-war protests while Bush was president. And then, of course, I mean, what Obama dropped bom- bombs in seven different countries. I mean, right. he started new wars. Um, he did he he did more and more terrible things. And obviously, you know, the anti-war left was nowhere to be found at that time. And then, of course, they're they're back awake now that Trump is in office, and anything that Trump does, they're they're magically against it again. Um, so it, it's just it's sad to see that people really don't hold their principles they just hold but you know their their teams is is really all they care about and it's it's pretty gross really it's pretty bad to think about i I love scott horton by the way that guy is the most knowledgeable guy in foreign policy and and what's going on on the other side of the world that, that i've ever heard i don't know how he gets all of his information but it's like he it's like he lives there and he's just a reporter that goes around interviewing people in the in that area all the time i mean he just knows everything about the middle east and uh, it it's impressive it really is one of the things that clicked with ron paul was when he was talking about blowback and when i could actually you know i i started to comprehend that i started to look it up and i was like oh my god like maybe this is our fault you know yeah, like there's yeah. A, there's that chance which to me changed my whole thought process on foreign policy um, you know, in the, in those later stages, uh, you know, between 2008 and 2012. And I would say I wasn't probably a full on in the liberty movement until 2012 for me, um, with, with Ron Paul again is where I was actually yeah. pulling for the guy. But, 
yeah, to, everything he said in 2008, and then of course like his book um, that I ended up reading later and, and all of that completely changed my whole perspective on uh, what politics is in general and and putting, let's say, moral ethics uh, above uh, American first. Well, ju- and just to be clear, you know, saying that we could have been responsible for what happened, uh, you, you know, that doesn't obviously I think where people misconstru- misconstrue it is it doesn't excuse anything. It doesn't say that, like, it should have happened or they had the right to attack us or they had, you know, that anything like that should have happened. Obviously, if we did a bunch of bad things, it still doesn't mean that people should come and do bad things to us. You can't excuse more evil because of something evil that happened. But it is important to to at least be open to the chain of events that that leads to all of this. You know, we've been talking about Iran lately, and people seem to want to stop at 1979 and be mad at Iran about things. And I'm just like, why don't you go back to 1953 and talk about who should be mad at who, you know? It's the understanding and taking the personal responsibility. Yeah. Because that's what, if you believe in liberty, that's what you believe in. Well, they want to believe, they want to believe the lie too. Like people just want to believe what they believe. They want to, they want to prove what they believe and not ever have to contradict what, what their biases are. So that, they they will lie to themselves and they won't they won't allow themselves to to try and be open minded to any other ideas because that might mean that maybe they've said a lot of wrong things over the last several years and you couldn't do that so it's it's unfortunately getting people trying to get people to to ag- admit that they could be wrong that they might need to change their mind and obviously that's what we're that's what we're fighting to do every single day. So <laughs> I honestly think to boil it all down, if I could do, if I could go with one word, because I think how Ron Paul changed so many hearts and minds. It's like, how did he do it? How did he get it? How did he get me away from my bias? Right. And I really think it's one word. I think it's truth. He just told the truth. Yeah. Like he stood up for what he believed in and told the truth. And I think, um, I don't know if you ever listened to another podcast, but, uh, Jay, it used to be called the Jason Stapleton program now called mm-hmm. think wealth, power and influence. Um, another great podcast where he talked about all the time. He's like, look, in the realm of ideas, like the truth is on our side. And I think ultimately that's what Ron Paul displayed, which is why we had this massive liberty movement. I would say one of the greatest in the last few generations. Yeah, very true. Um, the, uh, going back to the, the kind of, um, uh, in-group preferences that people have when they have a really hard time kind of recognizing how uh, the consequences of government actions can kind of come back and the, the blowback phenomenon that the CIA talks about. Uh, you know, people really do have this kind of internalization of uh, the government. They're always saying, you know, oh, we, uh, our government, um, you know, it, this idea that if you incorporate your idea of who you are as a part of uh, the United States government system, all of a sudden it's like, well, we would never do that. You know, we would never, you know, you know, start something that would kill a million Iraqis because you honestly feel that, oh, of course, you would not do that because you're a normal moral person, and and they don't really separate themselves out and recognize that, well, you know, that's an entire 
system that's completely separate from you that you have no control over. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of people have a, a really hard time with, with recognizing the kind of historical path that's brought out people and uh, against the United States and a lot of animosity towards the United States. There's an unbelievable disconnect from the responsibility because one, it's not happening in, in our backyard. Uh, so we don't see the destruction. We don't see the, the inhumane things that happen. We don't see the, the dead bodies, you know, stack up. We don't see the refugees, you know, going around or, or be fleeing their country. We don't see any of that. It's not in our backyard. And then we didn't take the action. We didn't take the, what would you say? The, the first action. Um, we didn't commit the action ourselves, let's say. And so that you're able to disconnect yourself from the evil, so to speak. So you're like, well, I'm not the one who actually, you know, shot the, the gun or dropped the bomb or, or whatever. So I don't have any responsibility for it, but well, you know, you advocate for the policies that directly reflect what, it, what exactly is happening. Well, and the other thing is, uh, kind of what you said, Howard, that, you know, you think I would never do that. I, I would never do those things. So they, we can't be doing wrong. This just couldn't be the possibility. It's, it's so interesting to me that so many people on the right who accurately pinpoint all the other things that governments can do wrong. You know, they can be limited government things when it comes to economics or, or whatever it is, and they can say, well, governments are evil. You can't let tyrannical governments have control because they'll be, they'll be corrupted and they'll do, they'll do terrible things. Or the government does a terrible job. They wouldn't be able to allocate healthcare efficiently. They've screwed up the education system. They've done all these things. And then we just, we look at war and we look at our foreign policy and somehow the same standard, this, the, the same ideology just doesn't apply anymore. The people on the right are like, oh, well, we could do no wrong. Our government is perfect when it comes to this. What are you talking about? Everything that we do is great and moral and wonderful. And like, no, you're talking about the same animal, the same animal that you think it ruined healthcare and ruined education and, and is going to be tyrannical and is going to take your guns. It's the same government doing these things overseas. I think you could say the same thing about the left, actually, because yeah, absolutely. the left the, that stands, that. Yeah, that stands for civil, civil liberties that used to be the anti-war left. I mean, Obama dropped more bombs from drones than Bush ever did. And so it's like, and, and, and then you look at, what Trump's done recently in foreign policy and several people on the left support it. They all support invading Iran and, 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 you know, I guess bombing all the brown people they can find. Well, and it's, it's interesting that people on the left, it's like an opposite thing where they can't find the government big enough. Like they, they just want the biggest government they can have. And then, but they, they hate the the other byproduct of that government, which is the war machine, which is the government continues to expand and empire all around the world, and that's just another byproduct of your massive government that you love. And it's it's so crazy to see just the biases and the the political biases that completely block people from being able to be uh, objective and principled about about all these things. Right. And, uh, you know, the police, they're always complaining about the police. It's like, well, okay, you know, that's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, 
listen, people on the left that are upset about p- police brutality drive me nuts too. Like you're you're mad about the police, you you hate the cops. That's the enforcement arm of your government. Like right. these are all of the laws that you came up with, and these take everyone, are and take everyone's guns and give the, them to police. <laughs> these are your government right. enforcers, right yeah. here. And listen, we don't hate. I've got a lot of cops in my family. I always have, and we don't we don't hate. I think by and large, most of them are good people. I think a lot of them are victims of a law book that is. That needs to be reduced by about 99% so they could just be actually right. trying to prevent crimes instead of trying to find crimes. And it's a, it, it's just crazy to me to see the people on the left want the massive government, want laws for every step that you make and then hate the people that enforce the laws, but also want them to be the only people with guns, like Charlie said. It's just – it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it, and I just don't get it. Well, just like um, you know, if, if they did make guns illegal, you know, where do liberals think that the police are going to go and get the guns? They're going to go to the areas that there's the most crime. Well, that's yeah. the inner cities. That's African Americans in – you know, that's uh, minority populations. Just like they've been saying, oh, they're – they're over policing these areas. They're, they're uh, committing violence against minorities. Yeah. And that's going to dramatically increase if you make guns illegal. Well, yeah, and, we've always said, um, you know, you hate the drug war. Like a lot of people on the left, uh, they'll agree. They'll, ha- they hate the drug war. Can you imagine the gun war? Oh, Let, I mean, that's going to be way worse. It's yeah. a gun war. <laughs> like it's going to be a lot worse than the drug war. You can print your own guns. There's there's YouTube yeah. channels about making guns out of random pipes and things. I mean, it's you can't uninvent the gun. I've it's never, already been invented. I've never watched any of those. No, I've no, never no. I've never watched the guy have a pipe with a string on it that can be pulled. And yeah, no, I mean it's I mean I know people who can make guns in their own garage, who can make their own ammo and th- and things oh, like sure. that. I mean, you can't un uninvent these things in the same way that you can't keep people. From growing weed in their backyard, you can't stop people from making from making guns. And right. I mean, the idea that you're going to confiscate—I mean, if you want gun confiscation, you're—I don't even know if you're capable of having a rational conversation about anything. To tell you the truth, because you're talking to hundreds of millions of guns that are out there. We've been trying to get drugs off the streets for a hundred years, and finally, people are just giving up. Right. I mean, it, this is something that even more of the country wants. And that we have even more of. And uh, the idea that you're somehow going to get them away from people is is just completely insane. And, um, you know, uh, similar to um, drug um, restrictions, the drug wars, uh, the drugs have become more and more uh, potent and dangerous. Uh, you make guns illegal and weapons will become more and more potent and dangerous. I mean, you look at France. um there's a ton of fully automatic AK-47s in France, and those were used in that nightclub, nightclub shooting where, you know, they wiped out 150 people or something horrible like that. Yeah. You know, in the super restricted uh, France, and so, and just like you know, people talk about the school massacres, the largest school massacre was back in the the 30s, and someone blew up a school with firebombs. Um, you know, people are going to have violent tendencies and you need a, a direct 
uh, ability to counter that, and that's uh, you know distributed and distributed weaponry. Well, the, the and, is that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it, it's just uh, you know it, you're from the Midwest, I'm from the Midwest. I mean, there's fertilizer bombs. There's all sorts of bombs that you yeah. can that you can make, and you know they that uh, no Kaczynski, oh, somebody blew up some federal building with uh, fertilizer. And um, it's just, uh, you know, I think one of the things that people who accept kind of um, uh, rulers and oversight from the government, this is something I've been thinking about lately, is it's just I, I think there's a lot of discomfort, internal discomfort with the feeling of insecurity. And um, with having these different policies, these different rules and these uh, government entities and layers and all this different stuff, it provides um, a sense of security. I believe through the research that that's a false sense of security and, um, you know, people would be much better off focusing on their local groups and society and a volunteer society would provide a much greater level of security and, and uh, it wouldn't be perfect but it certainly would be better. Um, but I think a lot of people just really have a, a discomfort with the idea of, oh, I am very vulnerable to a lot of horrible things. Um, and uh, the idea of government and government rules and laws um, makes people be able to put that on the, the back burner of their mind and not really think about that. Um, whereas... You know, it, it, it's the government is not making these issues better for you. They're making it more likely that you'll run into, you know, uh, dangerous criminals, uh, people, you know, meth heads on these uh, potent uh, chemicals because uh, everything's been ramped up so much as they've been trying to uh, sneak these uh, drugs through the border. They've made them more and more concentrated and in making them more concentrated, they make them more dangerous and more likely for people to become psychotic and uh, violent. Um, well, yeah, if you, if you want safer drugs, uh, legalize them. I mean, that's that's the way to have sa- – right. I mean, if you want safe drugs, that is what you would do. I mean, the, that's the safest possible way that you could actually help people – who are becoming addicted to very, very dangerous drugs is right. to let people manufacture those, let people put their name on them, let people put their brand on them, and they're going to become much, much safer because the people who are making them, which people will because they'll be able to make money, the people who are making them will Have a reputation do everything that they can to make sure that no one dies from their product. Yeah, get you high but not die. And then you can start talking to people like, okay, well, maybe you shouldn't be getting high. Maybe you should just deal with life in in a uh, straightforward way. Yeah, um, go read a, go read Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson go. and uh, and clean and your room. You clean your room, and, uh, <laughs> you know, because it's a mess. And um, you know, just like with the guns, with these drugs, all this stuff. What what we don't like, what I feel like a lot of people do is they continue to attack symptoms of problems. It's basically all mm-hmm. of these government – pretty much all the plans that you see coming out are just attacking symptoms of problems. And if you want to do something about gun violence, 
you're never going to get the guns off the street. You're not going to get you're not going to stop people who want to do harm from being able to do harm. How about we actually talk about the real problem? The real problem is not that people have tools. The real problem is not that people uh, do drugs or that they have access to them. The the problems are within society. They're within people not taking personal responsibility. They're within people not dealing with their problems in the way they should and people becoming you know, filled with hate and re- resentment and everything to- towards other people and being depressed and being over-medicated for being depressed. And, and there's all kinds of underlying issues that cause these things uh, to, to – I don't know, to just keep being problems over time and maybe to keep getting worse. And we're never talking about the root cause of the problem. That's one thing I like about – that's one thing I loved about Ron Paul. It's one thing I loved about – actually, I read read both of Ron Paul's books also, and he talked about in his first book. He said, I'm a doctor. I – you know, I try to get down to the root cause of the actual problem, you know, the – your doctor is should not just be prescribing you ibuprofen because you keep having, I don't know, chest pains all the time and stuff like that or whatever it is. I mean you want to get down to what the actual issue is, and um, it, no one's talking about that. And until we talk about what the real problems are, the, we're just talking about symptoms. We're just putting Band-Aids on someone who got shot and uh, and, and not actually trying to fix what's going on. It's not going to get any better. It'll just keep getting worse. I think that goes hand in hand with what Howard was saying as well as people wanting to offload their safety, their security and safety on on the political process uh, because it seems in their mind that it's a tangible solution that they can grasp rather than uh, it's very difficult to deal with the bottom of the problem. Like it's very difficult to deal with the actual root cause of things. And I think a great example, at least for me, that I can probably explain the best would be abortion because I'm a very pro-life libertarian, if you wanted to box me in. Like I think personally that abortion is wrong. Like I wouldn't tell anybody that I love like, hey, you should go get an abortion this year because I'm so into it, right? Like I think I would try to sway whoever I loved that it would – to do the opposite of the choice. However, I don't think a law is what's going to stop people from having an abortion. I think if you actually get people to the place where they're not having kids when they don't want to have kids because they're making better personal choices, their economic status has been raised, their education status is a lot higher, they're not choosing to have kids until they want to have them then you drastically reduce abortions all the way down to hopefully almost zero. It's mm-hmm. it's actually, you know, um, uh, treating people uh, versus, as Nate said, trying to put a Band-Aid on the problem or social or political issue that you want to fix. Yeah, the, I mean, the law, if you're a, a Christian conservative or a libertarian or, or whatever it is, it, the law, anything against abortion, does not fix what the – actual problem is the problem of abortion is not that people get them or can get them the problem is that people get themselves into the life situations that that lead to that being what they want to do or that being their option 
you have to actually figure out how to get it to where people aren't putting themselves in that situation. And that's how you would actually, actually solve that problem. Right. Yeah. And, um, I've often thought or when people talk about uh, a variety of different problems, like, oh, um, uh, well, people aren't able to afford housing or this or that or school or I was like, well, you know, how generous would you be personally or how many problems do you think there actually would be if because the taxes were gone, everybody made approximately, you know, 50 to 100 percent more than they do now. And with regulations being gone, everything cost a half or a third as much as it does now. So you're talking of everyone having a threefold increase in their purchasing power. You know, what problems would there actually be that are, that are left? Um, and so you just take a, a huge amount of, of issues out of the, uh, out of, uh, out of the world with, uh, you know, homelessness essentially being gone because now it's legal to have a tiny home. You know, nobody's yeah. going to go bulldozing a, a, a tent city. Uh, you know, um, and, uh, you know, you don't have to have, you know, all these, uh, crazy rules in healthcare that, um, make it so ridiculously expensive. Well, um, we're, you know, we're big free market guys and all of these places where people say things are too expensive when it comes to, I mean, you name three really big ones, housing, education, healthcare, all too expensive and all insanely regulated by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, obviously they've been dumping and dumping money into these things to try and solve the problem, which they've just been attacking symptoms of the actual problem. The government would actually rather you be homeless than live in a dwelling that they deem unsafe. Yeah. Like homelessness is better somehow than a makeshift shelter. Yeah. It's just so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's just kind of the perverse incentives. Like they don't have the responsibility for actually taking care of their constituents. They have the responsibility for if a house is safe. If somebody's living in that house, is it then safe? Well, there's no top end to safety, right? You know, oh, it needs to be two by six construction. Well, why not two by eight? Yeah. You know, why not two by 12? I mean, let's just uh, tear down all the trees. Why, you know, why not uh, cement bunkers for everybody? Well, yeah, why don't we all just live in a in a big concrete bunker all the time? I think what everyone really wants to, we've said this before on the podcast, what everyone really wants is a prison. <laughs> That's what they want to live in. They want a big gate around it. They want three square meals, some cables sometimes, and they want a big concrete bunker with, guards. with guards, the armed guards standing outside. And, uh, and that's just your ideal, safe, perfect life right there. You've got everything you're ever going to need right there in your prison. Uh, it's, everyone's just trying to construct themselves a prison all the time. <laughs> yeah. And you think about all the uh, amazing advancements that, um, the, the world's made and the United States in particular when it was, uh, dramatically more free market with very little regulations. Uh, you know, I think it, maybe it was Jeffrey Tucker or something like that was talking about, like if, if you had this idea in this town, like, okay, I'm going to run this past my little, uh, local county and then we'll run it on up the ladder to the state and the government. I want to run an odorless gas. That if exposed to a small spark, it'll blow up. I want to run that into every home. And, uh, then people will just use it to cook with. 
And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it'll blow up a house or something like that. What do you think? <laughs> we do that. And I was like, no, of course not. That's absurd. But you know, I mean, natural gas goes to almost, it goes to all sorts of people's houses and that all that whole, uh, framework kind of came in before or just like, you know, le- electricity itself, you know, just like, Oh, you're just going to run electricity into someone's house that could catch on fire. I mean, <laughs> all that stuff. I mean, your house would uh, be much safer if you didn't run all of that, oh, that yeah. electrical work into it. You just, uh, you just can't have all that electricity just running through it. And, you know, so then they've, they have these systems are already in place, already being used for housing. And then they just kind of layer on all these other uh, types of safety equipment. Um, but, uh, who knows what today's modern equivalent of electricity and natural gas we're missing out on because of the dramatic overregulation at this time. What is it that people just come up with? Like, oh, that'd be sweet. Well, uh, might be kind of dangerous. I mean, who knows if that, yeah, I'm just not even going to worry about developing that because there's no way that would get through the regulators and yeah, just all sorts of stuff. I mean, in medicine, um, I see that all the time, uh, where, you know, basically every drug that somebody comes out with that's in, you know, some new drugs, some rep comes like, oh, hey, try this thing out. Like, oh, what is it? Okay. So. You know Flexeril, you know Cyclobenzaprine, it's been around for years. We took that and made it last 24 hours and we rebranded it. Oh, sweet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the exact same medication. It's just in a slightly longer release form. New patent, you know, costs 500 bucks a month or something ridiculous. And almost every drug that comes out is a modification. You know, they, they just, um, take, chemically half of it, like one, what technically is called an enantomer, just the one, uh, I can't describe it, but just, just they take half, half the uh, chemical that is easier on the system. And now they're going to call it, you know, that, uh, and, um, all these different things like, um, Oh, the example I can think of that a lot of people probably have, have seen the Prilosec, which is omeprazole. And then they came up with a new one, esomeprazole. Which is basically just, you know, half of a meprazole, the half that tends to be better tolerated. Um, you know, a whole new branding, a whole new patent, a whole new expense. One molecule. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> I was going to ask, sorry to cut in, but what's your, I'll interview you now. What's your background? What do you, you, you sound like you know a lot about medicine. Do you work in medicine? Yes. I'm a, a pain management physician. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Sorry. I, I didn't. I didn't uh, do all the do no, all the proper. Hey, no problem. I really, you know, obviously we just met right now on <laughs> just met right now on Skype, so I didn't know what your what yeah, your. Yeah, so was. I'm on the kind of the front lines of this whole yeah. opioid crisis, uh, and I was just always thinking, you know, when they have these numbers of fifty thousand people a year dying from opioids, and I was like, were uh, were the opioid dens really that bad? You know, yeah, <laughs> opium dens. It's just like. You know, you have a closed place. Someone's watching over them, getting them high on smoked op- uh, opium. It's like, okay. I mean, someone's like literally watching them instead of someone being in a, uh, you know, in some back alley shooting up with what they think is heroin, but it might be fentanyl. And, and, and who knows? You know, who knows what that dose is? Who knows how many times it's been cut? I mean, just there's that tragic video or uh, not video, a tragic picture that people will sometimes post on 
Facebook talking about how bad drugs are, um, of those two parents with little kids in their back seat who pulled off the side of the road and shot up. Um, and then both of them overdosed and died with a bad batch and their poor little kids were sitting in the back seat. Wow. Cops found them a couple hours later. Yeah. It's, it's uh, just like people are like, Oh, don't do drugs. I'm just like, Yes, that's a good idea to don't do drugs, but that is not because those people were doing drugs. That is because they were doing drugs that they had no idea the potency and they had done drugs for years and years before with no problems. Um, and if that was a Walmart brand heroin, they'd be guaranteed to get a certain amount of high. And yeah. no, they shouldn't do that. They should, you know, address life full for, uh, full and sober and, and, um, you know, uh, you know, deal with their situations with, uh, therapy, but it's just, you know, I don't know. It, it's kind of like the victim blaming that the, the, the left always likes to talk about. It's just like, you know, it's, those poor little kids in the back seat just bothers me. And everyone's like, Oh, look at these stupid parents. Like, yeah, okay. I mean, <laughs> people are stupid all the time. You don't need to wish them ill. Yeah. Uh, I I saw a news story uh, that we were going to talk about, I think, tomorrow on the podcast. Well, pick your brain on it since uh, what you do. But did you see that um, they've opened it up for the lawsuits against Purdue Pharma um, where people can start suing them now for yeah. for deaths or, you know, addiction and things like that to, to their drugs? Oh, that's one way to make prescriptions cheaper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's just, you know, I'm sorry for, I, I'm sorry for everyone who's become addicted to those things. And I, and hey, I'm tomorrow or Monday or what, I'm 18 months sober coming up here in, in a minute. Like I, I understand, um, I understand addiction and things like that. But Charlie, you just had surgery and you got prescribed what, some Vicodin or something like that for your surgery, right? Yeah, it was Norco or okay. hydrocodone. It's just, are you are you aware are you aware that those are addictive chemicals yes. and addictive drugs? So it's just it's not as if this is a secret that these drugs are addictive or anything. Mm. In the same way that it's not a secret that if you if you eat a double quarter pounder for every single meal from McDonald's that you're gonna and not ever work out that you might you might blow up to four hundred pounds and have heart disease and in the same way that. That might happen to you if you start eating terrible food and do that for your entire life. I don't think that you should be able to sue the restaurants. I don't think that you should be able to sue the people that sold you the food. Uh, it's just remove, it's removing the responsibility. And while, while I feel terrible for the people who have become addicted, um, it's just, you can't sue everyone that's, that, I don't know that sold someone something that have, that eventually killed them when when they were they were well aware of the they were well aware of the risks and uh, they still went down that path. I don't think that the pharmacy. I don't think anyone who manufactures hydrocodone in any kind of way is hiding the fact that it's an addictive chemical. Um, I don't, I don't think, I really don't think they're doing that. So in the lawsuit, you would have to try to prove that somehow the pharmaceutical company was nefarious in their marketing tactics or, right. or, you know, paying physicians, let's say to, to prescribe more of them or something to make more money. You'd have to show that they were, they were doing that. And that may be possible in some cases. I don't yeah. know. I mean, 
pharmaceutical companies could be doing that because guess what? Greed also exists. So mm-hmm. you have all of those realms. And the thing about it is you have to understand what I like about Jordan Peterson is he says we, we have problems that are much deeper than political. And I think it, when it comes to liberty minded people or libertarians or whether wherever you fall and if you want to box yourself in somewhere, um, it doesn't matter. But I think a lot of liberty people, libertarians and, and especially get a bad rap because all they, you know, people see us as, um, you know, guys and gals that just, uh, support greedy corporations and want everybody to be on high, high on drugs all the time. And it's actually the exact opposite. What we actually want the best for the most amount of people possible. Yeah. And yeah. that's why we argue for the the positions that we do because we believe that in a political sense, so to speak, when you pursue liberty politically, then you start to actually be able to address the problems that happen at a deeper uh, level than politically, be it uh, socially or psycho- uh, psychologically or, or any of those things. So – um, it's, uh, interesting you work on the, uh, physician side, you know, the kind of the, the front lines of the healthcare because we do the, the back end of healthcare, the financial side. Um, uh, so Nate and I's, I guess you could call it day job. We own a, a small little company that does software development and automation for, um, for healthcare companies to be able to actually navigate the massive, uh, amounts of regulation that come with just being able to try to collect uh, a dollar for the services that you provided to someone else, um, which obviously is mainly uh, regulated by the precedent set in Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so we see like, you know, all the back end, back end, I guess you would say side of the billing process and how yeah, crazy just, jungle, just yeah. how ridiculous and cumbersome it is yeah that uh you know i actually think although i don't think the president should have the power to do this what trump is doing by forcing hospitals to release their numbers is actually a good thing but i think if the market was free freer we would have already had that like hospitals would have done it voluntarily yeah uh, Yeah. to be competitive um yeah but since they didn't have to be because of you know all the regulations and obamacare is an unbelievable nightmare um you know, like they, they were able to, let's say, hide their prices or not be so upfront with them like, like no one else is in the market, right? Uh, but now, of course, the government, let's say, can strong arm them and say, well, now you have to show your prices. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's actually going to be a good thing for healthcare. I just wish it didn't come from government force. Right. But, uh, but yeah, healthcare is a, a massive one where it's such a big problem. It's such a big problem. And, Everyone wants government to try to fix it. And it's like, no, that's the exact opposite of what you want, actually. No, I mean, government's been trying to fix healthcare for a hundred years. years, (laughs) I mean, they, they started regulating healthcare. Did you read, um, uh, what, oh crap. Now his name's gonna, uh, the guy that does the podcast with Tom Woods. Yeah, Robert Uh, Murphy. Yeah, did you read the book? uh, Yeah, Primal Description. Yeah, that was, that was eye opening. That that was very helpful in in all of my image of of what the government's done in healthcare. Um, very good book. I recommend to anyone the the Primal Prescription. Um, they start they they started regulating healthcare. I mean, as early as nineteen 
1910. They started uh, with community rating standards. Uh, and and so we're well over 100 years where the government's been in, in inserting themselves into the healthcare system. And obviously with Medicare, just completely destroyed it with, with Medicare. And we work in the billing side. We see what the insurance companies do to get out of paying for things all the time. We see that. That's what we work in. But they're all working on precedents and rules that are set out by Medicare. They're all following Medicare rules. And they're right. the, same, the same rules that Medicare uses to deny hospitals payments for everything. The insurance companies have just copy and pasted those rules over to what they use to deny all their bills. Right. And and that's really where that's really where the system just went completely out of whack. I mean, you can look at a chart of healthcare expenses per person and pick where the line started to skyrocket up. And I bet you it's right in the late 1960s, sometime mid 1960s, something like that. 1965. Um, and that's where the line starts to rocket up. And it's right when the government started using taxpayer money to pay for healthcare expenses. Mm-hmm. Is that at that point in time, you've lost all incentive to be efficient. You've lost all incentive to lower your, in every other market that we have where everyone has an incentive to find ways to, to lower the cost of their items, to continuously make them better. When you inject taxpayer money into the system, the same thing we've seen in education, you completely lose the incentive to lower the prices for your goods. There's no, there's no reason to do it. And when a market, a market needs incentives. Human beings need incentives. We, we just, we just do. And the free market is reliant upon competition and incentives to make your products better and to try and find ways to outdo your competition and give them, give people things at a cheaper price and better items at a cheaper price. And they completely removed that incentive from the market. These people who think that we have a free market in healthcare obviously know nothing about the healthcare market whatsoever. There's not one single part of the free mar- of the healthcare system that is free market when it comes to your prescription drugs or your hospitals or anything. Maybe LASIK eye surgery, you know, maybe plastic surgery. Yeah, yeah I mean, those uh, are uh, excellent examples. I mean, if you look at the price of LASIK, I mean, it used to be several thousand dollars an eye, and now you see advertisements for 300 bucks an eye. You know, um, breast augmentations have improved dramatically over the past several years. I noticed. And decade. <laughs> <laughs> you can barely tell anymore, but yeah, you actually can barely tell, but, uh, yeah, and you know, you can get, uh, a breast augmentation for three, four thousand dollars. I mean, it's, and that's a pretty significant surgery. Um, and, uh, all the potential complications from that and, you know, the, lawsuits in regards because it's a fairly high maintenance population you're dealing with it's uh probably more likely than uh, other populations to sue and, and you can do that all for three or four grand but you can't you know take someone's gallbladder out for that much i mean it's just it's uh, ridiculous with is the government the people who work in in healthcare regulation were like let's ruin everything but i want to make sure that I can see whether or not someone has augmented their breasts. I want to know for <laughs> sure. So they're like, let's make sure that we can see 
that perfectly and make sure that as many people can get their breasts augmented as, as possible. So they were like, hey, let's leave those markets alone, okay? Because I, I don't want those markets Because <laughs> what good are those augmented breasts if, if I can't see them? So they, they you know, they like, no, we'll leave those. We'll leave those to the free market because I want those to be easier for sure. I know, <laughs> but just, you know, I've, I've been in practice. I've, 12 years now. So I've seen a fair amount of changes within, uh, the billing and you'll, you'll see. So there's, um, like, uh, you know, some things in medicine are actually quite cheap, like, uh, needles. So if, if you look at a, a medical needle, it is like a little modern miracle. I mean, you can get these little tiny 27, 30 gauge needles and they're all, they're all very good. Yeah, they're all the same width. I mean, just these little tiny things, little sutures and whatnot. And like, okay, well, how much are those? Like, oh, I don't know, a buck for a hundred. I mean, it's just like a crazy cheap amount um, for this uh, really cool thing. Just other stuff <laughs> that is ridiculously expensive. Well, the difference is, is that, oh, well, you can bill the government for this other thing. And so there's no incentive to decrease the price in that. Um, you know, one of my, uh, favorite reps listens to this podcast. I roped him into that. Uh, but he, uh, in, in his industry. So there's, um, it's a, a system where there's these little wires that you trial first and then there's a little battery pack that's surgically implanted. Um, and so, uh, several years ago, they changed whether you could bill, for uh the wire portion um instead of just the battery pack and so the wires used to cost uh, two thousand dollars a wire or something like that um and then you could and then over the years those prices kind of came down because the different companies would be competing like oh you know hey we got our little wires that you can test for you know a thousand bucks or whatnot then the billing completely changed and the doctors couldn't bill for those little wires anymore. It was all for the procedure itself and then the battery pack that the surgeon would implant. And so all of a sudden those wires, boy, they, they just got really cheap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, so you see all these little weird, uh, things that, that happen within these regulatory frameworks where, you know, these things, a lot of these things are artificially uh, increased in price. Um, well, I shouldn't say, well, I mean, all that money is going back into the companies and then that gets fed back into the, um, the research to move things forward and get new things approved. And I think that's where probably the largest expense for these, uh, companies end up being, um, as they're trying to funnel that money back, not necessarily for the direct research, but getting it through the regulatory apparatus. Um, That's I think pretty quickly they know whether they have a good product or not. Yeah, because they're researching, they can do research. Let's back on pharmaceuticals. You can do research and development for you know ten drugs, and those ten drugs will cost you almost uh, ten years and about thirty billion dollars to go through the FDA process, and they may only improve one of them. Yeah. Right. Now you got to recoup that thirty billion you just spent. On research development and getting FDA approval on one drug out of the ten that made it. Right. So how do you recoup that thirty billion? Well, now I've got to charge you a thousand dollars a month for this drug versus if I got all ten through, I could only I'd only have to charge you a hundred bucks. 
you know, because I got 10 approved. So yeah. yeah, like Ron Paul, um, I can name, uh, we could probably name about a hundred federal agencies that would be gone day one of our, of our presidency <laughs> for sure. I don't know which one of us here will be president or vice president, but, uh, yeah, the FDA is one of them that it would, it would be gone, completely gone. And I'm yeah, not, and, and people would be I'm safer confident. without it. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not as, um, Let's say I haven't gone full anarchy yet. I may go, I may go full anarchist one day. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not saying that, um, all regulations are necessarily bad, but I would, I would definitely say I'm, I'm at the point that 99.9% of them are, are bad. Well, I think regulations from, to me, the the market would regulate itself. So like yeah, there's you can have government regulations or you can have free market regulations. Like you don't need a regulation to tell Chipotle to make sure that their lettuce doesn't kill people. Like you don't need a federal regulation that says that. The market is going to tell them that. And you, you don't you don't need a regulation, but in a sense, the market is the regulation. And so I would rather have free market-based regulations. I would rather get rid of the FDA and have private companies vetting and approving drugs and putting their brand name on that drug or their seal of approval on that drug. And if the drug is terrible, then their seal of approval is worth nothing, and they're not going to get anyone to pay the money to get their seal of approval. So they're going to do a good job approving the drugs, or they just – They'll, they won't exist. They won't have any kind of brand. So it's just, to me, you know, regulation in itself, uh, happens, but it happens in the free market too. And it's just regulated by your incentives to, to do a better job, to, I, to be competitive. I agree. I think especially in this day and age with, uh, we're in the information age, let's say. You know, maybe it would be harder to get that information in 1900. You know, I couldn't do a Google search. To see if this seal of approval company was really good unless I went to visit them and read through their papers or something like that, right? Yeah. Uh, so definitely in 2020, obviously we have the, the means necessary to have a, a much higher, um, market regulation than let's say you would in 1900, but there still has, in my mind, and this is just where I'm at right now, there has to be some rules. For instance, like, I don't think you could ever get rid of the rule that it's illegal to murder someone because there has to be consequences for some of those actions, right? Well, is that yeah. crazy? Yeah. Is but that that's a, crazy? that's protecting someone else taking an action to remove your, your life, your liberty, your property from you at that time, which is, which is, you know, like you said, neither one of us are pure anarchists. I, I think there will always be a government to do these things. I don't think even if I can work out how anarchy would work in my mind, I don't think it would I don't think it would ever exist. I subscribe to the Jason Stapleton words on this, which would be that regardless, people will group together and someone's going to have the ability to use force in some kind of way to to have repercussions for for harming people. And that is what a government is. So so we're all just looking for the for the smallest the smallest government possible, uh, the smallest thing that there that there could possibly be. I don't know what the perfect answer is on that. 
but it's not this. Yeah. So <laughs> it's in regards this. to healthcare, I mean, definitely getting getting rid of the FDA. Well, as a physician, you know, where where would you stand, uh, Howard, on that? Like, where would you say, are there any good regulations that you can think of, or are you full board? Like, yeah, I don't think there really needs to be any. Like, people. People trust physicians for their services and people will trust, you know, you know, drug companies for, for not trying to kill you and things like that. I'm a, a full anarchist and, um, I don't think anybody should, uh, have a blanket trust. And I think that's what the government regulations kind of allow, um, to have this, uh, once again, false sense of security type system where, like, oh, it's got this label, it's going to be safe. Like, no, uh, it, it probably isn't. Um, and I think there would naturally be a spontaneous uh, order of uh, regulations and oversight organizations and groups that would uh, come about, just like your bicycle helmet or something like that. It's got, you know, four or five different certifications on that, and half of those are private. If you look at... Uh, the back of your plug or your computer, it's going to have a UL. Uh, that's all private organization that uh, regulates those. So I think a lot of, of these things would just naturally uh, come about. And every, essentially every single society has always had, uh, the violations of, of property and humans. Uh, being illegal and the consequences are oftentimes adjudicated and decided within that legal framework, but the legal framework is completely separate from the government. I mean, there's been the English common law for, you know, centuries and centuries, um, that has lasted throughout multiple different iterations of English uh, organizational government. Um, and there's lots of different law Systems that are completely separate from government. So, um, to say that anarchy is without law, I think is, is inaccurate. Anarchy is, is without rulers and without, um, uh, without force and violence being used. And so if that, uh, um, if you are within a, a voluntary system, and you simply accept that that voluntary system is going to have rules just like your local chess club or, you know, your homeowners association or, or whatever it is or your church. Um, those all have rules and those all have, have consequences for avoiding rules. Those are all governance. That's not necessarily a government where they can have the monopoly on, on violence. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. So there's um, a ton of, of oversight. I mean, if you just look in the um, the pseudo medical stuff, um, the supplements and on all these different things, there's tons of web pages that kind of talk about the pros and cons um, of all of these different things. I remember um, there's a couple of web pages that are specifically for uh, addicts. Um, and, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll go on those to kind of see if a new drug, how it's being abused or something like that. So I can kind of keep my, uh, eyes open to like, well, you know, maybe this, uh, 
you know, person might be trying or like combinations of things, medications that you typically wouldn't think of as being uh, addictive or getting you high, like in the hospital, um, like IV Benadryl, uh, IV Benadryl will give you, if it's pushed fast, will give you a nice little uh, buzz. And so you'll have some patients that say, you know, oh man, it's just really itching from these opioids that you just gave me, which is a common side effect. Uh, you know, every time, the last time I came in, they gave me this IV Benadryl and it really worked well. Okay, well now I'm like, now my little suspicions that this person's just trying to get high off of the, off of my expense. So you tell the nurse, push that thing slow. <laughs> <laughs> like, or I just, I just say, uh, have a sit down, like, all right, you know, what's really going on here? So, but the thing that amazed me was the level of intelligence that was displayed on some of these forums about, you know, doses and amounts and this type of thing and you know, how this molecule works and particularly in, um, uh, some of the, you know, weightlifting pages and whatnot, uh, about, um, using, uh, testosterone and growth hormone. And like how you should cycle these different things and different types of hormones. Like, oh, well, you know, this one is anabolic in this way and this way and stuff that, you know, I was like, wow, I have no idea. Like I thought, I thought testosterone is just testosterone. No, no, there's lots of different types of ways to cycle and, and all this crazy information, a level of detail that these uh, people have because they have a vested interest in how well uh, they can use uh, anabolic chemicals to improve their physique. And if you can just imagine a, a forums and web pages like that for diabetics, for uh, you know, blood pressure regulation and management, um, if people had the full weight of their healthcare expenses going forward into their later years, uh, you would see a dramatic change in you know, how people manage themselves. And particularly if you could just go and, you know, buy some atoprol all over the counter or lisinopril. These are blood pressure medications. You know, uh, very uh, safe medications and people would be managing their blood pressure. I mean, it's, it's not rocket scientists. Sorry. Sorry, uh, uh internal medicine <laughs> doctors. I mean, the vast majority of things that come into my office come into a lot of doctors' offices. That could be easily offloaded to the internet to uh, a lot of different uh, things. Well, that's part um, that, you know, I mentioned that book, The Primal Prescription. I mean, that's part of the idea behind that book is um, if you did carry the full weight of your health care and you actually had to be responsible for that throughout your whole life, um, what different choices would you would you make? Just like with everything, it's uh, – Human beings all, we all need incentives for everything to, to, to get out of bed in the morning. We need an incentive and, and to take better care of ourselves. Um, a lot of these medications, um, remove the incentive to take good care, uh, you know, to take really good care of yourself. And, and also the idea that, uh, everything's going to be covered for you after the age of 65 or what, or whatever it is. Not that, you know, obviously people are naturally going to have conditions, but can you imagine if you actually had to be responsible for, for making sure that you were going to be as healthy as you possibly could because you were going to have to bear the, the weight of, of all of your decisions throughout your entire life that you were going to have to pay for those someday. Right. How much healthier 
as a society would we be if we all actually had to deal with the repercussions and the consequences of all of our of all of our decisions and the way that we we treat our bodies throughout our whole life i mean you would completely change the whole incentive structure which which mm-hmm. is just which is just completely off base now you we remove the incentives and and we're just we're lazy creatures and we're always looking for expedience and the the best way to get to get out of doing anything and uh the easiest way to do everything and um we require incentives to be as good as we as we possibly can be and the problem is that the government is consistently removing incentives to to be as good as you can be we're just removing those incentives that's all the all of the ideas that you see coming from people are just removing incentives for people to be responsible for themselves and right. to to make better choices and you know what you what you tax you get less of and what you subsidize you get more of and we tax productivity and we subsidize bad decisions and that we're seeing the outcome of that right right now yeah and as far as anarchy is concerned i i, I think i could close to subscribe to that even even so far as you know greed like i said greed's always going to exist so if you do have like you know a, a a store on the corner of the city that says even if on the sign it said you know i take advantage of you incorporated <laughs> and uh you know th- those types of especially in this day and age those types of uh products and services will only last so long well i mean cuz in a free market across the street would open um i won't take advantage of you incorporated exactly. and and so that one won't last very long right. at all yeah cuz yeah <laughs> they'll go out of business you know yes yeah. and then I, I don't know i mean you could uh you can make a very strong case that uh, government actually incentivizes the, I don't, I take advantage of you incorporated that you get away with it for longer. Well, right? it incentivizes it by removing the, we already naturally have that incentive. Like that's just kind of how human beings naturally are. It, it removes the consequences and it, it, it enables and strengthens the people that will take advantage of other people. And it removes, uh, any, any incentive for people that would that would knock those people down or would would kill them in competition or do anything like that it 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 keeps that at bay and and you only have you know you only have the the power hungry people that are able to rise to the top and then do the evil corrupt things that are to keep themselves in power well look the insurance companies wrote the affordable care act yeah <laughs> I mean, they're the ones that wrote the damn laws so you like imagine in a world where you write a law that it incentivizes you. Yeah. Like you, Are you going to let Walmart write the National Retail Affordability Act or something like that? Right. I mean, you would assume that it's going to be packed full of corruption where that makes it to where Walmart will be able to suck more money out of your life and not be able to keep their prices low and things like that. Like you, you would, everyone would automatically see that that would be a terrible idea. To let Walmart write the law that requires you to buy products from Walmart. And, <laughs> and it's, it, but that somehow in healthcare, we think that that just doesn't exist. We don't see the connection in it whatsoever. Well, they're the healthcare experts now. Uh, you yeah. Know, we have to let the experts. Well, it's just trying it. to help people. I mean, there's people and they need help and we need this law, Charlie. Yeah. yeah. What I, what I, I got to give you this example, Howard, because I just, I recently had, um, uh, inner ear surgery. I had a, um, 
a mastoidectomy and uh, I don't remember the other, but since you're medical, you would under, understand kind of what that meant. Um, so I had basically inner ear surgery. I had a um, what's called a cholesteatoma, which is a cholesteatoma. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, a growth of my inner ear that had to be removed, and I don't have insurance. I'm cash pay, uh, and because I know the 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 financial side of healthcare, I know that it's a lot cheaper for me to do it that way. Um, especially I'm 31, so I'm pretty healthy and I don't have any major things. I would love to buy, you know, a catastrophic plan where, you know, something major were to happen and I had a million dollar bill, I wouldn't, you know, I would have insurance for that. Right. Um, that's just, that's really, let me just stop you for a sec. Yeah. Cause that's something that pisses me off. All right. We'll get back to inner ear. Okay. The elimination of the catastrophic insurance was uh, one of the worst things of the uh, Obamacare. Um, oh, and now almost everybody's insurance is essentially a catastrophic plan because I, I see deductibles all the time, two, three, four thousand dollars a year. And they, yeah, they made, yeah, they made like, okay, so a catastrophic plan kicks in after you spend ten or twenty thousand dollars, you know, but now everyone's insurance it kicks in after two or three thousand. It's just like, well, and you, insurance is more expensive. So you end up paying that much money anyway. It's just ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, so back to your inner ear. Yeah. So, yeah. So I I had that uh, about two and a half weeks ago and, um, I, I was, uh, you know, ended up being a four hour surgery and, uh, the, my surgeon had a couple different places where he performs this surgery at. And, um, because I was paying cash, um, everywhere I went, I got a 30 to 60% discount. But one of them really blew me away because at one facility that he uh, performs this surgery at, I was talking to the guy and I was getting, you know, the prices for their charge code just, just to have the surgery room for the day or the four hours that I needed it to perform my surgery and be able to form, perform the surgery. And the guy starts off quoting me. He goes, yeah, let me look for it. He finds it. He goes, okay, so our same day surgery charge for four hours would be $55,438. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, hang on. I was like, I'm cash pay. Like that seems way higher than the other places I've called so far. He goes, oh, sorry. That's if you have insurance. Our cash pay price is like 5,400 and some dollars. I was like, oh, so it's like literally a $50,000 discount because I'm cash pay. Yeah. Yeah. Like how insane is that? It's just like so insane to me. And I knew, I mean, I know that because I work on this side of it, but to give that personal example of like if people actually took the, the, people had the investment to actually have to call and say, Hey, what are your prices? And they found out those numbers. I think they would like, everybody's jaw would drop and they'd be like, what is wrong with this thing? I had the same unbelievable. I had the same thing. And Charlie, one of the craziest things with Charlie's to me is still his CT scan with contrast was $330 or something like that. I think cash pay is what he paid. Oh, that's great. You know what that, you know what that thing would cost with insurance? They bill $5,000. At least $5,000 with insurance. I had the same, I had surgery. I didn't have insurance. And I paid two hundred and fifty dollars for my MRI before the before the surgery. Two hundred and fifty cash pay. That was it. I got it. I got the MRI like three days after I called the imaging place. I they got me in for it, and uh, it was so quick. My surgeon, I was cash paid, charged me two thousand dollars for my surgery. 
And then I had my appendix out a year later with insurance, and the surgeon charged me twenty six thousand dollars for for the surgery. I mean, it's Great appendix. Yeah. It, it's 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 crazy. He, he probably only got like three hundred four hundred bucks. Oh yeah, I mean he, uh, you know that's that's the side of healthcare that we were very knowledgeable about. I mean he charged twenty six grand. No one ever got paid twenty six grand for that for that surgery. And that's one part, one thing that we call out with healthcare pricing, healthcare expenses. When Bernie Sanders is out there talking about how much money we spend on healthcare, they're using the twenty six thousand number. When right. they when they talk about it, no one ever paid twenty six thousand for it. Now healthcare is too expensive. I completely agree, and that's the government's fault, and they're sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's no one ever. We need to at least use the accurate information. My my wife is a financial analyst for the biggest hospital in in Nashville. She works for HCA, and she told me they were having a meeting. She's like, you know how much of our bills we collect every year? I was like, what? She goes. 18% of the oh. bills that that we that we bill out we collect 18% of the money that that's what we actually get back in but the problem is the quotes for how much healthcare costs is the 100% number right but no one ever pays it no one ever pays the full bill and we need to at least be using accurate numbers on this but unfortunately they're nearly impossible to to get a hold of they're, without uh, you know me getting my wife fired uh from from her job or us being a you know in violation of all kinds of hip rules and stuff like that i mean we just can't really talk about the actual numbers that we know i actually um, find i find it completely fascinating that i was able to have a four-hour surgery under general anesthesia uh, and I paid for the room, the anesthesiologist, and my surgeon for a total of $5,400 for somebody who went to school for a long time to learn to work on the tiniest bones in your body. On I don't even know why anybody would want to be an ear doctor, but he, that's what he <laughs> oh, specialized in. Someone's got to do it. Oh, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. like we were just saying, this tiniest bones in your body. and Yeah. Uh, and, and, hey. It's ear, nose, and throat. <laughs> yeah. True, true. Yeah. ENT, yes. but, oh, What's yeah. That's, uh, ophthalmologist? Uh, no, what, uh, what the, I can't remember what the name of that is. Um, oh. Is it ophthalmologist or, uh, no? What it's not ophthalmologist. <laughs> it's not that. Because no. that's a doctor, isn't it? I mean, oh, an, that's eye, an doctor. eye doctor. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he specializes <laughs> in specifically that. And I find it fascinating. I mean, he literally was, you know, uh, at some points he was like probably centimeters away from my brain mm-hmm. and uh you know and then there was a doctor that put me to sleep and woke me up and all of this whole entire process went smoothly i didn't die uh you know like all of this crazy things and i only had to pay it's just so, like i only had to pay $5400 which to me is like i would have i probably would have paid like 20 for that you know cuz i didn't even realize that was your total bill i thought that was just for the uh Surgery center's time that that included nope. total the doctor. The anesth- oh man, that's a, everything, dude. The anesthesiologist charged him like eight hundred dollars for four hours. hours. It's insane. Yeah. I got a no, two hundred bucks an hour. I mean, that's uh, you know, uh, people think doctors make a ton of cash, and yeah, sometimes we do. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it uh, when you really break it down. Uh, per hour, 
you know, it, it, it's uh, really not that much. Um, so, well, make it and they can accept relative because, to you know, you see these huge bills that, uh, like, oh man, they must be making a ton of money, but no. <sighs> well, and the reason why they can accept that that's the cash price is because they don't have to deal with the massive headache, which I understand mm-hmm. the unbelievable headache they have to. They well, one you have to pay people to understand the billing process because the the doctors don't want to deal with it. Then you have to have people that understand how to do it. Then then you have to make sure they submit it correctly. Then you have to wait at least probably ninety days for payment for all of that. Right. It's just it's so unbelievably cumbersome. It's like yeah, I'll give you an eighty percent discount if you just give me cash up front. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. I don't have to worry about you. You're I don't ever have to bill you. I don't have to mail you. I don't have to call you. Well, this everything works out perfectly for everyone. Plus, that's how much money I was probably going to actually recoup anyway. Right. right. <laughs> And plus, honestly, that's how much I probably would have paid out of pocket with my high deductible anyway. I yeah. probably would still had to pay all that. Very likely. Very likely. Yeah, I would be paying, you know, 500 bucks a month in my insurance premiums for nothing. It's yeah. just, it's, it's a, it's a good personal story that I, that I like to use to tell people just how asinine our healthcare system is. And, and it largely, you can bring that all back to, you know, the, the wonderful omnipotent state that makes it that way. <laughs> yeah. All for your best interest. Right. Somehow. So um, that's a great story. And then uh, some people, some listeners, I think, might be thinking this is a little too much a libertarian pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of a talk. So let me just finish off with a, a couple of little anecdotes um, for those out there who might be questioning the, the, the feasibility or likelihood that this would be an improved system relative to our current system or to fully socialized national health science, national health care or something like that. One would be, um, interesting study by an economist that, that, uh, took an average person, you know, they have these you know, models of average people, uh, initial job made 20,000 a year. Throughout the career, retired at uh, 65 with a job at 100,000. So somewhere they had that little curve of their income. And then they took the estimated uh, amount that they would pay in Medicare tax, not taxes altogether, just the Medicare portion of the tax. And then they uh, used a standard rate of compounded interest. I think it was 6 or 7 or 8%, something like that. Um, uh, so over those... Uh, 45 years. And then they determined, okay, well, what would the average person have instead of Medicare if they just invested that separate money? You guys want to take a guess? A stupid amount of I money. Would, I would guess, I don't, um, because I've done, I'm kind of cheating because I've done this exact thing on <laughs> security before. Um, Did they and, take, is it, is it in consideration with your employee paid or just the, just the six and a half percent that you paid. I believe it was also employee paid. So the the thirteen. I mean, it, it's got to be upward. It's got to be upwards of a million dollars after yeah. at that time. Yeah. Yeah, it was like one point two. It was like over a million dollars. So people were like, well, how would old people pay for health care? It's like, well, how about a million dollars? Yeah. Yeah. How <laughs> about that? they have a million dollars of their own money? And right. how much better would the economy overall have been? If that money had been in, invested that whole time All that in actual up. productivity yeah. that was being used efficiently and being invested in the stock market or whatever throughout yeah. that entire time instead of just being 
wasted inefficiently by the government. Uh, we can't, we can't even imagine what the world would look like right now if the government had not taken a hundred trillion dollars in tax money over the, since 1913 from us. It's, I can't even imagine what it would look, what it would look like if that hundred trillion dollars had been left in the hands of productive people. They and I talk all the time because one of the major things everybody always is like, oh, what about the roads? Well, we say, I, I think by 2020, we would at least, this is probably way too, um, not advanced. This is like the least advanced we could possibly get. But if we had private companies making roads actually, um, and not controlled by the government, we would at least have roads that would melt snow automatically. At like least. what a crazy idea. Actually, by yeah. this time, I don't think we would need roads. It would be, <laughs> we would have found a way to not need them. Uh, very likely, and you know yeah. the the road deaths of sixty thousand a year or something like that. That I mean, if you had a private road, the idea that you would last in the road business for more than a week after somebody had a head-on collision and they sue you, the family sues you, and it's like, so you built a road where two people were going, you know, inches away from each other at sixty miles per hour in each direction, and you thought this was a safe product. Yeah. Well, it's, easy, it's easy when there's no repercussions for your bad decisions, but if you're liable for suits, we don't even understand how safe roads could be. We don't, we just, we can't, uh, we really can't even comprehend it because we can't imagine what hasn't been invented yet or, or we would all just invent new things all the time. But, um, there was it, a really, uh, there was a really sad story. Um, this, uh, father was suing a guardrail, uh, making company. Because the guardrail, his daughter hit the guardrail and it malfunctioned. It didn't operate as designed and it ended up killing her. Mm. Tried to sue them and they were protected by the government since mm. they did the government work and the judge had deemed that he wasn't allowed to sue the guardrail making company. Mm. Like, how crazy is, like how crazy is that? Yeah. The, the guardrail actually malfunctioned. It didn't operate as it was designed to operate in the name of safety. And yet the, the company was immune because it was a government project. Yeah. Right. And then as we're going back to my uh, million dollars with uh, Medicare, um, and then of course you combine that with the fact that everybody's making 50 to 100 percent more because there's no taxes and then, uh, everything's half as much. Um, and then the, uh, the, the additional thing is just so you guys are in Nashville, Tennessee, correct? Yes. I'm just going to take a guess here, but if you could, Tell me what hospital systems are in that city. What are the name of the different hospitals? Uh, you have Ascension Health, which is St. Thomas. Um, is that Catholic? Yeah, that's Catholic. Right. You have HCA, which is uh, Hospital they, Corporation of America. They own like 170 or, hospitals well, they, yeah, they own nationwide. They're the largest. So the largest hospital company in the world is based in Nashville, and they've – uh, that's HCA, and they've got seven hospitals, I think, in the, in the, in the immediate area. Um, and then there's uh, so they're is there, private. Is it CHS is located here too? Right? CHS headquarters is here, but they don't have any hospitals here. They okay. have one hospital in Lebanon, Tennessee. Yeah. And the very worst hospital in Nashville is, is Nashville. Is Nashville, Metro. is Nashville Metro General, which is a <laughs> which is a city. It is like a city hospital, the yeah. public public hospital, and it is the worst hospital. <clears throat> All right. So um, as far as hospitals go, I think I think that's it. I think it's Ascension. Yeah. There's HCA, and then the Nashville, yeah, uh, Nashville General. So you guys have a Catholic hospital system. Um, 
Would you say that that hospital system is is probably profitable at this point? Um, according to the bonuses they give out, no. <laughs> no. Do you, are they not? I mean, I know HCA they're, is obviously profitable, but I don't yeah. know much about Ascension um, at all. I don't know if they're, they might, I don't know if they're non-profit. They are non-profit. Okay. But as far as do they make a profit? I mean, they right, right, the right. executive team, you know, the same that HCA does, let's say. Yeah. You know, their CEO makes like, I don't know, 10 or 20 million. Um, <sighs> but like they, for instance, uh, my girlfriend actually works for St. Thomas and uh, she's a nurse there. And this year for Christmas, they gave uh, all the nurses uh, $10 Kroger gift cards. <laughs> like, yeah, so I went and bought everyone in her ER a $25 Starbucks gift card because <laughs> I thought that was just completely ridiculous that Ascension, um, they – if you look at their uh, numbers, um, they're a nonprofit. You can go look at them. I think they roughly grow somewhere around – 20 billion. They're similar to HCA. I would say maybe half because HCA gross is like 40 billion. So I think they're about half. Um, and then they're, they end up. Are you talking about Centennial or HCA overall? Uh, HCA overall. Okay. I think HCA overall gross is somewhere around 40 billion. Oh, yeah. And then their net profit ends up being somewhere between two to eight billion a year. Ascension, I think gross is around 20 billion. And then they operate, they're nonprofit, but I think. Some, what I've looked at, I'm going off the top of my head, but some years they'll net like a billion and other years they'll only net maybe a, a couple hundred million, let's say, and after their, all their expenses and their nonprofit type of status. Alright. Um, so let's go in the way back machine to the <clears throat> 1950s. Talk about that Catholic hospital system because you see this in almost every major city, every city. Uh, like I was in St. Louis for a while and you had Missouri Baptist, you had, uh, um, St. John's, you had, uh, Barnes Jewish. And all of these hospital systems were originally started as ways for the churches to provide, uh, low cost care. And there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't return to that or that they would have gone away from that had not the government become involved and turned these different hospital systems into, you know, enormous, uh, very expensive, full-fledged hospital systems. Um, and uh, so you've, similar to the housing I was talking about before, where you made it illegal to have you know, inexpensive housing, you've also made it illegal to have inexpensive uh, hospitals. Well, one thing we these different on, diverse incentives. Where, where are you located? Right now I'm out in Portland. Okay. Do you guys have uh, do you guys have a certificate of need law there? Uh, no, Washington okay. does though. Okay. I think there's about 35 states that have them. Tennessee is one of them. You're you were talking about making it you know illegal to have affordable. Sorry to cut in, but it's, no, that's fine. The, my wife certificate worked, of need is a great thing to talk about. My wife worked for over a year on a on one certificate of need um, oh. to try and get a a. Uh, freestanding ER unit put in somewhere in town. And what a lot of people don't realize is that in 35 states, um, you have to get approval. You have to get a certificate of need from the government to be able to do anything healthcare related. Literally, if Centennial Hospital, the biggest hospital downtown, wants to put one more bed in their hospital, 
they have to get approval from the state to do it. Until a few years ago, if you wanted to buy a new MRI machine, you had to get approval from the government to do it. Um, and the the bigger issue with that is when you apply for the certificate of need, your competition has the right to take you to court and mm-hmm. challenge your certificate of need. And so what had happened was uh, uh, HCA was trying to put in a freestanding ER unit, and one of the other competitors here in town took them to court for over a year uh, to challenge the approval for them to be able to build that building. And they ended up losing. They spent about 14 months on it, and they ended up losing. And I, I asked my wife, I was like, how many people were working on this? How long? She was like, well, I worked on it almost, you know, I worked on it three or four days a week. And there were probably a team of about 20 people trying to get this, you know, lawyers, all kinds of people trying to get this approval to build a new building. Uh, they, the same thing if they want to put a new bed in their hospital or if they want to buy big equipment. Um, and people don't realize just how anti-competition the healthcare market is. Yeah. And that's one of the things, if you were to go back to your 50s, uh, Catholic hospital, that's another thing that we just removed. We've removed the competition from the market, which is the entire reason that all of these cool things that we have, our computers, our phones, our cars, our well, barely our cars, but uh, uh, all these things that exist in a competitive market, um, they've been able to get better and cheaper throughout time. I mean, in, in 95 or whenever it was, uh, you know, the Macintosh launched, it was $2,500 and it barely did anything, you know, right. it barely did anything. And that, you know, now maybe that's the same price they charge, but look how much better it is. Look how much a computer was when it was first invented. You know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, whenever they were very, very first made. And look how much cheaper they've become. We've we've outlawed competition. We've outlawed competitive pricing, uh, allowing people to build new buildings to make themselves more efficient. We've literally made it illegal. We've made it to where competitors can force you to not be able to compete with them, and then we've blamed all of this on the free market. Mm-hmm. It's it's insane. And now people who were in the free market lobbied the right people in the government to make the regulations so they could control people. So it, it's it's people did that, but if that government apparatus didn't exist, then that wouldn't have been possible for them to be able to do that. And we would ha- we would have that new ER unit in Brent- in Brentwood, here around Nashville. We would have more beds, or we would have had people with more MRI machines. It's been like five years now that you've been able to buy a new MRI machine without asking the government if you can do it first in Tennessee. It's insane. And somehow this is all, you know. Oh, we've got to stop the free market healthcare system. What free market? There isn't one. Yeah. It's not not anywhere close. I'm sorry for cutting in, but you just made me think about the CONs, which are like my biggest tick because my wife wife spent so (laughs) so long on this CON for this thing. And people have no idea that those even exist. They they don't even know that they – and I know it's a state law. It's not even a federal law, but local governments can be tyrannical too. Yeah. One of the best examples I would say um, is uh, the Mayo Clinic. Um, The Mayo Clinic – which was in its inception 
you know, they partnered with uh, Sisters of St. Francis, and in fact, St. Francis is still the main uh, Mayo Hospital there. Um, but they phased out the the Sisters. Um, I think back in I think the eighties. I think it was the seventies or the eighties was the last time that that uh, that the Sisters of St. Francis had anything really to do uh, with the Mayo Clinic. And now a days, like you can't even get accepted into mail without insurance, hardly like their mm-hmm. whole idea of providing um, low cost or free medical care to those who are less fortunate and couldn't afford it. That they're in, what they were built off of. It no longer exists. Um, there's a great documentary on Netflix right now. Um, if you just search Mayo Clinic, it pops up. It goes through its entire history and, and, um, how cool of a, a facility it is and all the great things they've done. And I'm sure there's probably some terrible things that some people know about, you know, Charlie and, uh, William Mayo possibly. I don't know, whatever. But if you watch the documentary, it's really neat on what they were able to accomplish in Rochester, Minnesota, out of all places. Right. Back in, you know, the late 1800s when it was started was, you know, nothing, a town of 20 people, um, to, to what it is, uh, obviously, uh, today being the, you know, one of the top research hospitals there is. And I think they do, um, one of the cool things they do is all of their physicians are on, uh, salary. So there's no separate, uh, billing. It doesn't matter how many patients you see or whatever. You can actually spend time and do the research and, and everything you, you want to do as a physician without having to worry about, you know, making sure you get enough, uh, whatever, make sure you see enough patients in the day to, to get your salary that you want or whatever. Um, which, which I think is kind of a cool thing as a company to do, but, and and then the physicians can work together and be more of a teamwork on all the the weird stuff that they see. But the back, you know, in seventies and eighties, they kind of went away from that model, what you were talking about of how these Catholic hospitals and, you know, the sisters of St. Francis that, you know, despite their lack of medical training, they were the nurses back in the day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're the ones that actually, that, that cared for people. Um, and so it's, it's, um, since you could say really, I think the, the major point we can point to in history is 1965. Since then, uh, when government became so heavily involved in healthcare, all of these, Charities and nonprofits and, and churches and people that provided all of this. I mean, Ron Paul talked about this, um, in, during, was it during the debates or no, it yeah. was a, an interview. We well, did it was with in, Tom a de- Woods. in a debate. He had a response to, uh, Wolf Blitzer's question. Um, he's like, I practiced before Medicare. Yeah. I, I, I and he's like, and, and the churches took care of it. The community yeah. took care of it. You know, he's I like, think I, he, he worked for like a dollar an hour. Yeah. Yeah. He said they, they never turned anyone away. The, the people, you know, people were always taken care of. And we just, going back to what I said earlier, we've removed the incentives. Human beings have to have incentives and we took them all away. And the healthcare industry, just like all of these other industries we talked about, needs incentives to lower their prices, to be more efficient, to actually be able to charge prices that people could actually afford. And there's, they're not there anymore. They're, they're, they're all gone. We've done everything we can to remove incentives from that marketplace. And, and this is the product of it that it's the same as if were to exist in any of, in any other market that you could ever name. If you were going to, well, what happens when you give people financing for whatever house they want to buy, regardless of what their income is? Well, the price, 
shoots up on everything. What what would happen if you give anyone a student loan that wants to go to any college? Well, the price shoots up on it. And it's it's the same thing that happened in healthcare too. It just happened it it happened 50 60 years ago and we're we're just living in in the product of that right now. And the answer is is obviously not more taxation and more government. I've I've yet to see something that they've made cheaper and better and more efficient and and higher quality. I, I can't point to an example of a time that they actually did that. I, yeah. If you've got if you've got one, Howard, you can let me know. But I, I just can't find one a time where they made something cheaper and more efficient. I don't. If someone wants to tell me, I, just tell me what it was. But you can't put the health care of you can't put the lives the lives of 330 million people in the hands of this crazy idea that's never happened before, which is that the government can do something better than the private market. We don't have an example of it ever happening and and deciding that they can do a better job at taking care and keeping people alive. Um, that's not that's not the bet to make when you're when you're when you're, uh, you know, over. Over a hundred right now. It's just right. not the it's not the proper bet to make at there's all. Multi- there's multiple examples of uh, you know systems turning socialist and becoming much worse. I mean, Britain's falling apart right now with their health national health uh, system. And I've uh, done uh, mission uh, medical mission work. Uh, every country I've been to has had socialized medicine. Uh, you know, uh, Mexico and Fiji and uh, Peru. And it's like all those places had socialized medicine. So what was I doing there? Right? Yeah. Why did they need yeah. me? Why did they need this you? Is, this is supposed <laughs> to be little utopias of everyone having uh, healthcare provided for them. So. <laughs> well, it's if you you know I actually I want to tell everyone if you get on your news app on your if you have an iPhone just click on news and select the National Health Service as something that you're interested in, and uh, so that's Britain's. That, you know, search NHS and make that one of your favorites and you'll start seeing all of the news items that come out in the UK about how terrible the system is, about how they have a shortage of doctors and a shortage of nurses. Physicians are leaving. And what their waiting times are. We've got this, this weird idea in our heads that they're operating inside of a perfect system and everything's okay because we saw a video that asked for people whether or not they like their health care and you know, I guess that's an accurate statistical sample. And and so we we cherry picked a few people and we decided that they've got a great healthcare system. Make National Health Service one of your favorites on your news and read the articles that are coming out from the Daily Mail and, and all all of those sites, the independent and, and all of those news sites over there. It is not a perfect system. It's falling apart. Mm-hmm. They're 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 out of money, they they disagree on things just like we do. They've got shortages of providers all over the place. It's it's not as perfect as it sounds. And deciding that we can somehow implement those systems, you you take a country like Denmark, who's got you know five million people and is the size of West Virginia, and we decide that we can magically implement that system over a two thousand mile long border and three hundred thirty million people. And our massive government bureaucracy and just that it's going to work as well as it is there or better or something like that. I mean, it's not possible. None of the examples that people give you are of any country the size of the U.S. implementing 
any type of healthcare system like this. They're all examples of countries that are the size of New York City implementing healthcare systems. I got to go to Cuba a couple of years ago and uh, we did this little tour. Uh, I say little, there are probably, I don't know, 20, 30 people on this tour. And then we were all Americans and uh, tour guide was awesome. And they're like required to talk good about Cuba, I guess. And he was saying all the wonderful things and we passed by a hospital, which just looked absolutely wretched. <laughs> and he was like, Oh, you know, one of the great things about Cuba is you have free healthcare. So if any, he's like, if anything happens to you guys while you're on your trip, this is probably where you'll go. And I'm thinking, Oh God, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me go there. Yeah. And then like come to the find good, out our government made that place illegal 40 years ago. <laughs> right. Come, come to find out like physicians in Cuba make $20 a month. And by the time this tour was over, all of Americans, I mean, I, I, Almost every single person tipped this guy and like, I think we tipped him 20. I saw another person tipped him a hundred. Um, and most people were tipping five and $10. So this guy probably made three, 400 bucks, 500 bucks per tour that he gave, which is, you know, a year's salary for a, uh, or I'm sorry, it'd be almost a three year salary for a physician in Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, they have free housing and they get free food and free health care. You know, and you don't need to make much money whenever you have everything provided for you. Yeah. How many how many uh, makeshift rats are, are heading from Florida to Cuba, you think? Uh, well, <laughs> all of them because of all those amenities. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things in Peru when I was working there, uh, I was working at a, uh, an Adventist because uh, I went to Loma Linda University, which is an Adventist um, uh, church uh, associated hospital. So I was down there at an Adventist hospital and they, they charge people cash. Um, and then they tried to raise money to help those that couldn't, couldn't afford it. But, uh, I asked them, you know, why, why don't they, why don't people that, that need surgery, uh, go to the government hospital? And they said, well, I mean, they have to bribe the doctors just as much to have the surgery. Otherwise they just open them up and close them. Oh, wow. wow. And so I'm, I'm sure that the doctors in Cuba were, were, you know, it was probably a very similar situation. Sure, they got $20 from the government, but, you know, in, in order for the doctor to actually treat you, you had to grease the palms. Right. Where at yeah. in uh, Peru? Uh, this place called Juliaca, which is, uh, uh, just a little north of, uh, Lake Titicaca. So, so like one Costco. of, one of Charlie's business ventures you said we did a lot of things but he uh actually started a travel agency in peru hmm. well travel agency well, we sorry you weren't legally um yeah right. sorry that was a not the the improper legal term for what you guys were yeah. well yeah well it's more so we uh we helped orchestrate uh like the the different tours you can do inside of peru we okay. were we were another company competing with um some of the big, the big names that are there. I can't remember what they are. Um, so like, uh, rafting, uh, rock climbing and jungle yeah. tours and that kind of thing. Right. The excursions. So we did like, uh, yeah, the Inca trail and yeah, I did that. Yeah. Like that. Yep. So, uh, so I've been, I've been to Peru, great place, but I mainly, uh, we stayed largely in Cusco. Uh, mm-hmm. did beautiful two nights in Lima, um, which is a crazy city. And, mm-hmm. uh, there's like, uh, I don't know, there's like 8 million people there. Um, and then, but mainly we, we stayed in Cusco and, uh, we went to Agascalientes where Machu Picchu was. Uh-huh. We stayed right there. Um, so we did some of the, the tours and we bought a lot of the equipment and, and stuff while we were there. Um, so Peru's awesome. And then we, um, we specifically have one community that we, 
work with um, school and their children and stuff like that. It's called the Ryan community. And I don't remember exactly. It's about, um, I would say, probably 50 miles um, west or east, sorry, of Cusco uh, uh, in that area. And uh, we set up a, a little thing there. So Peru's a beautiful place, one of one of the coolest places I've ever been. Um, but that's cool that you guys do uh, the the hospital and stuff there. And you also um, mentioned Adventist. Are you still mm-hmm. uh, Adventist? Uh, well, my mom's listening, so oh yeah, sure. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, my mom. so uh, yeah, interesting thing. My my wife's entire family is uh, is Adventist, and they, they actually live in a. They're all in Chattanooga. Uh-huh. Uh, which is, um, you know, kind of a local mecca for, for, for that because, uh, what's the, um, universe, the place that's there in, in, in Chattanooga? Southern. Well, so, yeah, 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 yeah. My wife, my wife went to Southern. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then she went to a, uh, school a boarding, in Portland. Yeah, a school yeah. in Portland, Tennessee that, that was a, like a boarding school there. So, yeah. yeah. And I actually had uh, a girlfriend back in the day who was Adventist. She went to school there too for one year. Yeah. Same school, so I went to visit her there. Not allowed to, not allowed to visit boyfriends. What's really funny is when you mentioned Peru, I was like, huh, I wonder if he's an Adventist. <laughs> There's some kind of connection with Peru there that I, I don't know what it is well, cause, exactly. Um, you, Lacey's, uh, you, her dad's wife is Peruvian, right? Yeah. yeah. But they're still like, like the churches do trips to Peru and, and all kinds of stuff. I don't know. It's well, like there's, I don't know what it is. They talk. They talk about Peru so much that I assumed it was like the the motherland of of, of some kind of for for Ab, for Adventism, but I don't know anything uh, about that. Really, not that I know of. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, the Loma Linda Hospital is associated. There's about 150 uh, other hospitals within kind of the Adventist network in all sorts of different countries. There may be more now. Um, but, uh, I had, uh, classmates. So after your first year, oftentimes you have a little break there. All the other years, you don't have any breaks during the summer. So you have a little break and oftentimes people would go do medical missions. And so I had people going to, you know, Africa and China and well, not China, uh, but you know, uh, Asia and, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of these island countries and, um, Peru it's- and Bolivia and Brazil and, and it's a, um, it's one of the big, uh, uh, features of, uh, the Adventist system and the Adventist hospitals. They really focus on the health message and, and really do support their, their hospitals throughout the world. Uh, so I think that's, that's great. It's pretty eye-opening seeing all those different places around the world, isn't it? That's, that's one of chart. So one little backstory thing. Charlie and I both played music. That's how we moved to Nashville. And I saw both, that in your profile. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, uh, I did some Google work and, uh, shoot, now I forgot. The, I listened to some of the, uh, music. Really? Now, I totally how, forgot the oh, name of the band. Where was that? Uh, I don't even know how you, where that connection is. Okay. So here's, like where here's that's how you find your connection. You go <laughs> Nate Thurston. <laughs> you Google that up and then you Google Nate Thurston and uh band or something like that. I can't remember okay. what, uh, okay. what I did. I gotcha. yeah. that, there was an article in your Illinois, small town Illinois newspaper oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that nice. says this was the name of the band. Oh, gotcha. And, uh 
That might have been Rose McCoy. No, that was they did a Darling, Darling Parade, Parade thing. Yeah, Darling Parade. Yep, yeah, yep, that's what it was. Yeah. And so we tour. We did. So you a guys lot were in that band. Well, I was I was in that band. Charlie was in another band uh, called Three Pill Morning, and he toured. Uh, same thing. He actually toured uh, for Armed Forces Entertainment first, uh, and then uh, we actually used his band's connection and got in with Armed Forces yeah. Entertainment and to um, get that government money. Yeah, get all that government <laughs> money rolling in. Shut up. Yeah, except for they, I mean, it's technically unpaid. It's, it's, they give you per diem for the shows. Yeah. But, I mean, we went through Kuwait and Bahrain and Djibouti and UAE and Singapore and, um, I mean, Greenland and the Bahamas, like just kind of all over the place, playing at different military bases. Everywhere and, our military is, which is all over the world. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> at, at some point the, you're just like, Man, we could really reduce a lot of these bases and save yeah. a ton of money. Oh man, yeah. I, it's uh, you know, it was very eye-opening to be in those different countries, um, to see those cultures. We have a girl in our band, and she was almost arrested because she went out to the swimming pool in her bikini while we were in Bahrain. Um, and they, I mean, she was out there for maybe five seconds before people were. Yelling at her and the people from uh, the hotel were in, out there telling her that she had to cover up and and all kinds of stuff because uh, they didn't want to have to call the the police. And um, I mean, it was just crazy to actually be. I mean, we went through Saudi Arabia and seeing some of the 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 looks. I had never seen what it actually looked like to see someone looking at you and know in their eyes that they that they wanted to. To, to kill you like that i i can tell you i don't know how i know it but until you've seen the look in someone's eyes when they're looking at you and that's what they're thinking is it's just pure hatred um you just you don't understand what that look looks like mm. but um man it was crazy to uh to actually experience those different cultures and really still it makes you have some gratitude for the the good old usa with all of its faults for sure well, that is an excellent way to uh, wrap up this. Uh, this has been with um, uh, the host of the Good Morning Liberty podcast, uh, Nate Thurston and Charlie Thompson. Let's make sure to check out their uh, webpage. I'll post that in the links, and this will be uh, com slash 10. Uh, Nate and Charlie, thank you very much for this conversation. And I might uh, have to break this up into a couple different episodes because uh, – <laughs> We just kept right on chatting. Oh, it's I can keep great. going for two or three more hours, man. We have a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been awesome. Uh, uh, thanks for the invite and uh, thanks for the interview. And uh, we appreciate it. It's been an excellent conversation. Like Nate, I could I could go all night. Yeah, <laughs> on all these ailments. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, Honor and Ron Paul uh, podcast uh, episode ten, and take care.